Hello and welcome to the latest episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. My name is Paul Hindle, editor at Fintech Futures, and our guest for this episode is Amreen Sodi, head of digital product payments and loyalty at Scotiabank. Amreen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. So just to get started, would you like to quickly introduce yourself to our listeners with a bit about yourself and your role then at Scotiabank? Happy to. Hi, everyone. My name is Amreen Sodi. I lead the digital product team for payments and loyalty. And a recent portion of my mandate is also blockchain in payments. It's exciting because it allows us to be close to everything payments in the current state to create great client experiences, but also invest in the future of digital assets. Overall, my background from an education perspective is an engineer and then an MBA and spent a I guess more than a decade now in investment banking and retail banking in product strategy, risk strategy, and uh, digital banking roles. Excellent. Thanks for that, Amreen. And with you on the show this week, we'll be discussing the current banking landscape in Canada. We'll be taking a look at current digital banking trends, new developments and initiatives in the space, and how banking has evolved over the last year, both from the bank and customer's perspectives. But first, as always, is our news in numbers segment. This is where our guest has gone out and found a new story featuring an interesting number to discuss and get us started. So, Amreen, what have you brought along for us today? All right. So going on the recommendation from the Fintech Futures website, I think I'd go with the U.S. banking sector launching digital asset settlement proof of concept. It's interesting to me because I really like the way that the banks as well as the Fed in the US are approaching this space in terms of actually doing a POC to validate what the technical design, customer experience, systems impact can be in DLT or distributed ledger technology based setup versus I guess just publishing white papers or doing more theoretical research, which is also an approach that's been taken by many geographies. I personally like this approach because it allows you to pilot and actually see things tested out and hypothesis validated or invalidated. So I think just for the audience, it's a consortium of one of the biggest banks in the US, not one of them, actually many of them like US Bank, Wells Fargo, City, along with the payment networks like MasterCard, as well as Amazon Web Services all in partnership with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. I guess how important are these types of initiatives to you and how much usable information do you think gleaned from these types of initiatives? I think a lot. And we are seeing more and more governments take that approach in India as well. There's been a recent pilot for the retail central bank digital currency in market and so on and so forth in some other geographies as well in Europe and UK. From a Canadian perspective, we are not there yet, but ideally we want to get to that space where we are early days of building our hypothesis, talking about some of the risks and challenges and what sort of technology specs can help mitigate that. But really the proof of the pudding is in POCs like this, because when you test it out, they give you a good sense of unforeseen glitch validation of actual processing times, which is very key, especially in a retail central bank digital currency space. So I think the starting point always is a theory and hypothesis, but really before launching into market, testing out a few POCs is is a very a strong way to validate all of that. Yeah. And as you mentioned there, I mean, we've had a lot of these CBDC experiments coming through now. I guess the big kind of crystal ball question would be at what point do we move from POC and pilots to, to full rollouts? What do you think about that? Because it's a crystal ball question, I guess, 
I would say it will vary for geographies depending upon the stage at which they are in. So countries like A, China have already tested out pilots. India just recently did it. US is starting to through this news piece. And then in Canada, we are still, I'll say, early days because we're still in that theory investigative stage and not close to POC. So depending upon what stage each government is, I would say the actual launch in production or at scale is a good natural step from doing POCs. So if I have to think about a country like India, where they've recently testing a POC, probably a year or two from there is when they, they would typically go into production and have things launched on scale. But for a country like Canada, where we're early days of investigation and thinking about this space, we're probably, I'll say, four to five years out from actually putting something in the market. So that might be a time horizon that we see different geographies coming on board. But definitely across the board, I feel like this four to five year mark uh, might be the sweet spot where we start to see a good chunk of the big nations having some form of central bank digital currency or a distributed ledger network based payments platform in market. We are in part two of the podcast. This is our more interview style section where we focus the discussion into a specific industry topic or sector. So as mentioned today, we'll be taking a look at the banking landscape in Canada. So Amrin, can you give us an overview then of the banking scene in Canada at the moment and what you're seeing in terms of trends and what the uptake has been like for digital banking services? Absolutely. So in Canada, the historical and the current state continues to be a banking landscape, which is quite heavily dominated by, I'll say, top five or six banks that have been around for more than 100, if not 150 years. And as 80 to 90 percent of the Canadians actually bank or have a primary banking relationship with one of these big FIs. So all in all to say they continue to remain very prominent and, and play the biggest role in the banking space. Having said that, there are a few incumbent banks uh, like EQ Bank that are starting to grow in prominence. Very typical to incumbent banks, they start with niche areas like in case of EQ Bank, it's like a mortgage space that they enter and they start to grow from there. The I'll say the challenger bank space has been going quite steady, but not to the point say in contrast to maybe UK market that it's at a place where the big banks are feeling very challenged or struggling to retain their market share. Uh, I think they're still in a comfortable spot, but there are a few uh, big names who continue to go steady in the challenger bank space. And it's been a mixed bag. We've had a few Canadian fintechs like Coho who've stayed steady in this space as a challenger bank. But at the same time, I think banks like Monzo entered and then they left the landscape because of the, I guess, what I heard was like regulatory challenges. So it's been a mixed bag. But all in all, I think the big FIs continue to retain a lot of the market share, continue to enjoy that sweet spot and comfortable feedback from the customers. And challenger banks have a minority, remain in that steady minority, but nothing at this point, I'd say, which is sort of alarming for the big ones. Outside that, if I think from a digital banking adoption perspective of Canadians, it continues to steadily rise. Obviously, the last two years, just like rest of the world through pandemic, we did see spike in adoption, understandably. 
and that spike while the spike doesn't continue but the people who adopted digital banking continue to choose digital banking as their preferred channel at least for quick transactional activities and i'd say if i at a high at a, on an average maybe 3 years back if we were at like a 50% digital banking adoption of the customer base we are looking at now like early 60s in digital banking adoption so a continued growth not as much as pandemic but still and then even within digital banking a significant shift towards mobile first so i think that's a pattern we'll probably start to see if not already banks going mobile first with a lot of their features and launches and then online banking actually following suit if anything we're seeing a lot of migration of traffic from online banking first to mobile banking Excellent, excellent. And with that rise, I mean, in the UK, there's always a lot of talk about branch closures, and pretty much all the the so-called like high street banks have been announcing closures over the last couple of years. So, is it the same situation in Canada, or are physical branches still on the agenda there? I'd say the trend is in that direction, Paul, but it might not be as significant as UK for a few reasons. One, the the density of UK is quite consolidated. whereas in canada it's a very huge geography very scattered population pockets so the scattered ones definitely need branches to be served there but there is consolidation and optimization happening in the heavy populated cities so the torontos vancouvers and the calgarys of canada they're definitely in the main city areas we are seeing consolidation and optimization but i think the remote areas still branches remain a preferred option not just remote areas for the indigenous population pockets as well we have heard that their preferred option because a lot of times they're not served by a good internet so digital banking might not be a great option for them so they do drive up to the closest plaza commercial plaza and use the branch for banking purposes so i'll say we haven't seen across the board increase in branches it's definitely on the going down side but not at a pace that might be happening in uk what's also changing though is while the numbers might not be declining at such a huge rate the nature of transactions in banks that has significantly changed over the last 2 to 3 years moving away from transactional banking the teller kind of service to advisory on assets like just financial advisory more complicated products onboarding that continues to happen in the branches and we've seen like the obvious demographic that people would expect the senior population that yeah they prefer branches but we've actually seen the need from young adults as well that for complicated advisory life events banking services they do look for, to speak to an advisor or come into a branch so across the board there is some sort of a need that branch continues to be very relevant for and we believe the banks are investing in that space and less of i'll say moving away from teller kind of services to just migrate all of that to the digital banking excellent and as you mentioned there with large areas have been quite remote what challenges does that present then for banks to ensure financial inclusion in these areas yeah great great question paul and very top of the mind for our bank overall and especially for the digital banking group in scotia bank of inclusivity so some uh, interesting uh, insights like we constantly do a lot of research for this segment from an inclusivity perspective to design financial services catered to them uh, a couple of interesting ones i i'm happy to share one is internet connectivity so we've explored or you know we continue to think about how can we have a leaner version of the mobile banking app 
that can potentially do some services even when without internet connectivity or limited internet connectivity. So internet connectivity remains a challenge and uh, something we are thinking about. Two is, uh, as we think about the standard KYC and onboarding areas, we see that typical ID documents, etc. might not be relevant or available for these communities. So expanding our KYC eligibility or acceptability criteria so it's inclusive for, for this group of population. And then I think lastly, we also think uh, areas around lending is another focus because this is very interesting to me that I learned that people, when they own homes in the indigenous areas, they actually don't like own it. They're leased for like 100 years or something like that. So uh, typical ownership procedures for a mortgage also are very different and that apply to this area. So that's another space that the bank is thinking. Generally, I'll say the banks think about to bring inclusivity for this population. But overall, uh, both from digital banking and banking products perspective, it's very top of mind. And I'd say across the board, they're quite committed to this. So I think it is quite a topic of discussion when we think about new products and features. Excellent. And I guess on that front as well, in terms of the customers that Scotiabank has, what are they particularly looking for from their banks at the moment, maybe from the, the digital services side? And what have you been doing to meet those demands? Sure. One big theme has been advice, more on their transactions, Paul. So if you think about personal finance management, third party companies that people used to previously use, they are looking more and more for those insights from their banks. And the fintechs, I'll say in this space, have actually offered that to the customers. And then that sets up the customer expectations to feel the same need from their primary bank. So I'll say that's one place where the banks in a very positive way have been disrupted or encouraged to think about. So if you think about it's the insights from your transactions, how much money is going in various categories, what are some of the personal milestones that the customer is looking to do, like savings, how do we help them achieve that? So that's one space I'd say they are the customer segment, retail customer segment has really honed on and told us that they need. Number two, I guess from a payments perspective, this is a general trend, Paul. I won't say just specific to Canada or anything, but the need for faster, if not real time and secure and transparent payments is has been a big theme as well. So many, I think that's been accelerated by so many players getting into the payment space. So people are just exposed to more, just one-click payments. And that's something they're starting to expect and want from the banking services as well. And the third, which is, I guess, an always-on theme has been rewards. Uh, Especially, I'll say that's very specific to Canada. There's some like crazy stats there that on an average, each Canadian has like uh, five or six, if not more, rewards memberships. So rewards is something that they really love, uh, they want to be part of, and also drives a key factor in their decisioning for banking services, financial products. So I'll say that's an evergreen theme for banks to be continuously investing and innovating in to engage them. Those would be the big ones from a retail banking side. And I think on the wealth side, for again, retail customers, interest in investing in digital has been a theme. We've seen some incumbent challenger banks like Wealth Simple who offered it and they were able to get a good amount of traction and market share, especially with the younger demographics. So I'd say that would be something of interest. But obviously, as with the recent impact to that market, it can backfire that sort of strategy. So banks uh, in general are 
taking quite a tentative approach of starting to offer some like ETFs, etc. with exposure to crypto or digital assets, but I think still not there in terms of offering pure crypto trading either, which I think is fair. I think there's lots of data out there to say that the customers investing in this space don't really understand what they're doing. And the business of banks is in the business of trust. So unless we can be sure that they understand what they're getting into, might not be a good idea to introduce it and then people losing trust in the banks overall. So yeah, I'd say those would be some of the themes. Excellent. And I guess expanding to, to look more generally, then, what new developments or use cases are you seeing in the banking space at the moment that you're particularly excited about? Use cases, I think very much on these lines. So one, I'd say advice has become a big theme. We Most banks, including the big banks now, are offering some sort of an advice, though I think a lot of them are leaning towards partnering with third parties in the back end to surface it. That's one use case. In Within payments, the concept of value-added services, Paul. So think about me being able to pay my rent through the bank, me expecting a much easier bill payment experience in which instead of me having to enter each and every account, the bank is able to prompt what's due, what's not kind of thing. So smarter payments, personalized payment use cases, like split payments. So, you know, a group of friends going for a cottage weekend and they want to split their expenses. Those sort of use cases have picked up momentum on the payment side. Loyalty, loyalty, I think from a spirit of going beyond just cashback and travel rewards, giving them more creative or diversified options to use their points for redemption. Like you can contribute towards a social cause or you can use your points to buy crypto or kind of assets. So just, I think, enabling a diverse redemption set from a rewards perspective would be another use case. And then I think one key phenomena, which is not really driven by customer, but they're more impacted, is fraud and phishing. So this is something that the banks and the networks, payment networks are investing, and technology companies too, are investing very heavily for easier authentication, frictionless authentication, yet secure transactions. So that's a big space that customers only see a tip of the iceberg, but a lot of work, both from a technology and customer experience and product point of view happening in the background to support this future of surge of digital payments, e-commerce transactions, because there's all, they also come with a lot of fraud. So I think there's a lot of work going on in the back end, background for that. And hopefully we move into a world where these sort of payments are very secure and both customers and merchants feel comfortable about them. Excellent. And with the speed of digitalization and customer expectations always shifting these days, um, how much have Canadian banks been looking to partner with fintechs to expand their offerings and how important are these collaborations going forward? Very important. So I think in pretty much all the spheres that I've mentioned till date, if anything, it's been much less of a threat to the banks, Paul, and more of a partnership collaboration. It works both ways. So from a fintech and a third party perspective, banks have such a solid footing, market share and trust factor with the customers that it's much easier for them to get to scale more customers through partnerships and vice versa for the banks. Obviously, they're not the fastest moving organizations or the most tech savvy, but them being able to partner in a lot of cases, even acquire these startups or third parties goes a long way to offer a much better and secure customer experience. So 
like examples it pretty much all over the board i guess a few models i can highlight is one would be classic partnership so for example as a bank if i have to lend to a niche customer base i would partner with uh, startups or m- more mature fintechs in that space we obviously see lending club doing their own thing in the us but here in canada as well we have quite a few unicorns in the lending space that the banks would partner with the second model and that model exists like in lending in authentication fraud all of these spaces a lot of an advice as well like i mentioned earlier a lot of partnerships in the background that's enabling and one theme actually that comes to mind that i i did not really highlight in your earlier questions was also chatbot so customers who are in the digital banking arena they obviously have a preference for the digital banking as a channel for issues and transactions so offering them the ability through chatbot to actually just chat with the agent versus having to pick up the phone and call that also is being enabled in a lot of case by third parties even as big tech companies like google in the background uh, through the bank so that's one model the other model we see rbc which is royal bank of canada is, is the biggest bank in canada and they have invested in something called rbcx or previously it was rbc ventures in which they actually invest in fintechs where they see potential and support their growth so that's another model of partnership we have seen between the big banks and the fintech and third parties excellent coming off the back of cop27 as well quite recently and with climate and net zero targets being leading agenda now at financial institutions have you noticed more environmentally focused activity in the space recently and what kind of initiatives has a scotia bank put in place to promote that sustainability both within the business itself and among the customers as well i think at the top of the house for all the banks the strategic vision it's definitely a very clear call out and statement of their investment and dedication towards this space moving forward there are a lot of more i'd say on the corporate banking side and less on the retail side yet we see those efforts panning out in terms of supporting and easier lending or more relaxed lending practices for companies that are in operating in the environment or environment tech space so that's one thing i've seen some banks like rbc also doing a lot of i'll say discovery education and white papers in this space so they have a whole podcast around environment friendly banking practices and then i think on the retail side we have seen a little bit less of initiatives having said that i do know that the banks are exploring including a scotia bank how do we ensure or how do we build capabilities that can meaningfully inform our end customer retail customer of what is environment friendly versus not what kind of transactions like it influencing their spend and transactions to more environment friendly activities for example say using rewards to promote transactions in merchants that are more environment friendly and things like that so i think on the retail space we haven't seen much things coming to life but definitely conversations are going on from supporting the environment and esg perspective but having said that you'll probably hear from me in your next section on why i think esg is a little bit of a overrated word but overall i'd say definitely a big focus from the top of the house more initiatives have come to life on the corporate banking side but less on the retail banking side but that's another theme we are hearing especially from the gen z's and millennials that they do want to be informed and helped by the banks to have a more of an environment friendly footprint even in our digital banking we've considered 
having dark mode which is a low energy mode and uh, promoting that to our customers so in subtle ways on the retail side to promote environment friendly behavior has definitely been something we've been thinking about Excellent. Some, some foreshadowing there for our fintech jail. So uh, we'll look forward to that. But just to, to finish off this section, are there any more developments in the pipeline at Scotiabank you can tell us about? I think one maybe close to my heart is definitely the uh, on the blockchain and future of payments and digital assets side. That's close to my heart, something it's early days for us within the bank, but we do believe that future of digital assets will definitely have a place, if not the vast majority, but a strong minority in payment. So we're thinking about how do we build capabilities towards that future. In the similar vein, in the current state, I think for most banks, we are investing and partnering with Payments Canada and Bank of Canada to build out the central clearing, real-time clearing system. It's called Real-Time Rail. So it's a consortium effort that the bank is heavily investing in. So I think from a retail perspective, some of the key areas of investment is just real-time payments. Cross-border is an area which is not solved yet, but top of mind of how we can enable similar experience of real-time and transparent payments that we want to think about and exploring all sorts of technologies to make that happen. So in the retail space, we'd say payments, a recent big investment from the bank and focus areas has been the loyalty platform as well, which is a Plus program, which every Canadian would know, but outside Canada, it's essentially historically used to be a movie loyalty program, but now it's expanded to much more than just movies to be to include groceries and all sorts of other retail spend of the customer. So that's a heavy area of investment from expanding our loyalty program and giving more options to the customers to spend and redeem. And advice. Advice is another big one where we feel we continue to make a lot of investments because there's a huge customer need as well as lots happening from a competition perspective. And then I think for Scotia Bank, we have a huge footprint in our Latin America countries like Peru, Mexico, Colombia, Chile. So that remains a big focus area within the technology world, reusability, moving to cloud, etc. Some of the, I'll say the standard investments that most banks are looking at and so are we. And yeah, I think that's for now, those are the big themes. Here we are in part three of the podcast. This is the FinTech Jail. This is where we ask for an industry term, buzzword or trend that our guest has seen or heard enough of. We then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail or if it's already there, whether it needs an extended sentence. Or, of course, our guest can argue to free one of the previously incarcerated terms. So, I mean, you've definitely hinted um, a little bit towards the end of the interview there on, on what you might be throwing in. But which buzzword have you decided to hand a sentence to today? Yes, this was definitely required a lot of my time at the homework side, but very interesting question. So I think what I'd want to bring to the jail is actually ESG. Maybe not for any reason, that an obvious reason that would come to people's mind. But I think from my perspective, it's been at play for a very long time. I've been at the banking and financial services maybe for more than a decade and potentially from always from the start, it's been used. But I feel why I want to bring it to the jail area is because one each of the separate segments within this term, which is environmental, social, and governance, are so unique, distinct, and very important that combining them actually I feels that we're diluting the focus that needs to happen in each of these spaces distinctly. 
and at the same time really making it vague from a measurability perspective because the metrics one would use to think about making changes into environment is very different from social and for governance as well so i don't know why somebody decided to club these three elements together three very important but very distinct because i feel just bring them together dilutes the focus and brings in so much vagueness and lack of measurability to this segment which in my opinion should actually be very distinct areas and most important and i think in today's mind especially being a working mom environment and the future that we are leaving our generation with is a big one for me so and with the whole cop 27 if you are dedicated to make changes it environment itself should be a big theme having clear metrics on how any institution is making a difference so that is my rationale we are diluting the value prop and making it vague to measure which obviously doesn't help the cause yeah i think i i completely agree with that when you when you initially said that you were thinking about putting esg into the jail i, I panicked a little bit because i know we do a lot of coverage on, on on esg kind of like elements but no i think the rationale behind it is completely makes sense in terms of each of these individual topics are so important in themselves does it make sense to as you say have a, an overarching term clubbing all three of them together when you know the specifics could be focused on and you should be focused on kind of like individually i guess um, I guess with ESG, the term gaining so much traction, I mean, usually what I would ask now, I guess, would be, is there something you would want to replace ESG with? But I guess really what you're looking at is just getting rid of the kind of like grouping of these things together and just being able to focus on each one individually. But I mean, do you think the term ESG has become too ingrained now for in mainstream kind of parlance? That is very true. I think that's a fair point. Like this is just, I think it's on the point, it's probably wishful thinking, <laughs> for me to put this into jail but in all practicality to your point as a combined concept it's only gain more focus and momentum because each component within it has become even more important than it was 10 years back so it's probably very hard to be stripped from actual use what i would just hope is that it becomes so important and relevant that companies start to break this out you know it's just like when we think about profitability we don't report one metric for banks or for any other organization. It will be the components of the profitability, which is revenue, cost, operating budget or whatever, debt, etc. So because if that's that important and we go and we actually break it out to report and drive changes, I just hope that uh, we the same sort of practice can be established in ESG where it's actually broken out, clear metrics established and institutions and corporates are being held to some standard, some specific metrics here. Otherwise, it just becomes one of those things, which it continues to be a, a one part of reporting. And we talk a lot about it, but we don't really see much changes. I definitely think the, the rationale behind what you're suggesting there is makes complete sense. I think what we can do is maybe put ESG into a holding cell kind of like initially and just see, as I say, as we go forwards, whether that kind of we start to see change in terms of... That works. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I think we can do that. And then, like I say, obviously, if listeners come on and want to kind of like fight with that and think maybe, I mean, as we suggested, ESG maybe has, has done the term itself in terms of gaining that popularity, maybe has done well for individual kind of like sections. But I think for now, certainly we can think in, in terms of, yeah, putting it in a holding cell and we'll see where we go with that. Cool. Maybe something you can ask your other guests, if they have a better term suggestion, Paul, we can then reintroduce that term into the market. Yeah, no, that sounds good. I think that's a, that's a good plan. Well, that is all we have time for this episode. Thanks, of course, to Amreen for joining me. 
As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at Fintech Futures, and of course on LinkedIn. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service to get notified about future episodes. As always, thank you very much for your support. We'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye.